With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Friday edition, which means we have the panel coming up at the bottom of the hour. But to start the program, as usual, it is this week's Ram and Stag. I'm your host, Nathan Gita, and today I'm joined by Aaron Ackman for our final show before hiatus. Good morning. Good morning. Where where are we starting, Aaron? It's been a hot week in uh, British Columbia. It's been a fiery week, I guess one could say, if if you'll you'll uh, forgive me a couple of puns. And weirdly, to me, uh, maybe not. Maybe I shouldn't. I, I shouldn't be surprised by this stuff, I guess. But we see in, uh, there was a lot of talk in British Columbia this week about declaring a state of emergency. And, you know, this kind of caught my interest because there was a lot of this debate back in early 2020. If you recall, uh, there were two states of emergency. People don't really realize this nuance, but there's there's actually two, at least two pieces of legislation in British Columbia in which we can, the government or a health official can declare a state of emergency. And so back March 2020, the first state of emergency was declared under the Public Health Act by the chief medical officer, uh, Bonnie Henry. Uh, and that state, uh, it's, it's a legislative um, trigger, and it allows, it, it affords all sorts of additional powers to the provincial government, as you know. And so it enabled the lockdown. This was, this was repeated across the country as well as uh, federally as well, but uh, provincially in particular, it's, it's the piece of legislation that allows the provincial government uh, via the, the health officer to be able to enact all sorts of sweeping author- authoritarian uh, moves. And I, I would argue, despite the frustrations that people had had in British Columbia over this having happened, um, there was actually a fair bit of reluctance on the part of the provincial government comparative to other jurisdictions to really lock things down hard. And really what I witnessed in British Columbia, and, and of course everybody will perceive things differently depending on what their social media feed looks like, I, what I perceived in British Columbia was a, a large group of the what I like to call the professional managerial class really urging the government to enact more restrictions uh, to lock things down harder. Similar things happen in Alberta, but, uh, you know, bizarrely, the conservative government, the, U- the UCP, uh, I mean, they actually took, took the public, the PMC up on their, on their offer to, to lock things down, and you saw pastors getting jailed and all sorts of stuff. Churches were certainly restricted, as you talked about a lot here in BC. I don't think anybody was arrested um, for continuing, although I don't know if we had the same kind of pastors who, who, who sort of violated the, the restrictions. And so, you know, it's debatable whether, whether the provincial government in British Columbia sort of resisted the lockdown as, uh, as much as they did in Alberta or not. But in any case, what I observed was, like, if you looked at Twitter, where the PMC likes to hang out and communicate with each other, uh, they were ta- all the, and still today, all they do is talk about more restrictions locking things down harder and their frustration about how the provincial government is not enacting mandatory mask legislation, et cetera. Uh, and then the, the, the day after that, it was March 17th that Bonnie Henry did that. The day after that, March 18th in 2020, uh, a second state of emergency, sort of a parallel state of emergency under the Emergency Programs Act was enacted by the province of British Columbia. And so that's that second state of emergency legislation is what was being talked about this week in relation to the wildfires. 
and the biggest uh, advocates for declaring a state of emergency ended up being pretty much the entire BC Liberal Party. And I won't show you all the different tweets, but uh, it was pretty much universal. If you were a BC Liberal MLA, Shirley Bond, Todd Stone, Dan Ash, Dan Ashton, I mean, is right in the Okanagan where some of the evacuations, the Soyuz, et cetera, are taking place. So it's understandable that he would be very concerned. But you also saw the interesting to me, and this is a flashback to our, our discussion last week, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. And if you'll recall, we reported on their statement last week when they came out in favor of, in support of Harshal Walia's comments uh, in relation to burn it all down in terms of the churches. And, you know, whether you agree with uh, the UBCIC, uni, sorry, the, uni, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs uh, support for Harshal Walia, uh, I was delighted to see somebody at least speak up for somebody's right to free speech. And just to preempt uh, uh, a number of things, people probably also heard that Harsha Walia has since stepped down from her position. Uh, and I suspect that uh, I read the statement from the board uh, and it looks like she was basically pushed out as a result, which is something that we probably won't get into today. Maybe we can talk about it later, but very concerning to me that irrespective of what, what whether you agree with what she said or not, that the head of this BC Civil Liberties Association, the organization that is really the only outfit in British Columbia that actually advocates for free speech rights, there's other organizations in other jurisdictions, but in BC, it's really the BC Civil Liberties Association. The head of that organization being pressured by its own board to step down because of statements that she made. I, I mean, that it's in its in and of itself, divorced from the context, whether you agree with what she said or not, is a frightening prospect to me. Anyway, that happened. Um, so this week, flash forward to this week, and the same organization that defended Harsha Walia, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, put another statement out urging the, the provincial government to declare a state of emergency related to the wildfires, which just, uh, to me, was very contradictory uh, given how many sweeping powers, how many sweeping authority, how much sweeping authority these these tr these legislative triggers give the provincial government, and I think if we're a people in in this province of British Columbia who value freedom, we should be very hesitant to to provide those kind of sweeping authorities to the provincial government. We, it should be uh, a last resort move. Uh, and this is, you know, I mean, it, the irony is not lost on me that the communist is the one saying this. And every B.C. liberal MLA to the person pretty much was screaming to the rafters all week about how incompetent the provincial government was for not having declared a state of emergency. Um, so I jump in any time, but that, that's sort of the framework. And I can get into what what the what powers are actually uh, triggered in this case. Yeah, I, I guess for me, it, it is an interesting contradiction in terms, certainly in ideologies and competing ends, uh, competing goals. It, it, the the thing in my mind was on a, a purely like, hey, things are going bad right now. Maybe somebody should turn on a siren, like that sort of understanding of a state of emergency. Like, maybe someone should probably turn on the air siren. Someone should probably turn on the understanding of a state of emergency. So we should probably turn on the air siren. So we should probably turn on the flashing lights. That understanding of it, like I 
yeah, I can sympathize with that, even empathize with that, perhaps even support it to a certain extent. But I don't disagree with you that asking for a state of emergency, not that there isn't bad things going on right now, but the sweeping powers, especially after we've just witnessed what happened in COVID, and now literally there are questions around vaccination. What happens if people aren't vaccinated when they go into these uh, these school gyms and that sort of thing when they're evacuated and put on cots, on rows, uh, in school gyms? That's That's an entirely other sort of situation um, and perhaps the first thing that should have been states of the emergency if anything should have been at the municipal level uh, before before asking the provincial government to get involved but I can't understand why people would reach that quickly to that to that particular uh, apparatus yeah I think I mean I, I agree with you there I can I can understand sort of the panic that some people are feeling uh, and some organizations are feeling if they can actually see the fires coming towards them, you know, they're probably like, like, why haven't you declared a state of emergency? It's clearly an emergency. There's a fire literally coming over the mountain towards my, my home. I can understand that, but let's, let's just pop over to the, to the presentation I have here. Um, I've got a quote from Brendan Rouse who, from the emergency management BC, EMBC, which is the, or the agency, the government agency, uh, which advises the provincial government on whether or not, they deem it necessary. They think they need the additional authorities afforded through a state of emergency. And here's what he says when he was asked last week, a state of emergency is primarily a legislative tool. And during this current event, a provincial declaration of a state of emergency has not been necessary to provide assistance to people to access funding or coordinate or obtain additional resources, including federal assets to support both response efforts and people who are affected or impacted by the event. So here's, this is the guy, I mean, and this is the thing that, that the BC Liberal MLAs, they understand this, but when they complain about it to try to try to rile people up as an opposition will try to do, this is the part that they leave out in that it's not even really a decision made by politicians. It's formalized by politicians. It's uh, it's declared by cabinet and usually, and as as was the case two days ago, uh, by the public safety minister. Um, uh, in this case, it was Mike Farnworth. But here you got the guy who's responsible for giving the advice to government who has absolutely no reason, no incentive to not ask for a state of emergency if he deems it necessary. And he's saying, look, we're fully mobilized. We've got all of the resources at this point that we need allocated around the province. And as we'll see in a couple of minutes through this press conference that the premier did, there's already, you know, firefighters coming in, not just from other provinces, but from literally around the world. And they're saying, they, they didn't need to do it. And so you have to wonder, like, why is it that the BC Liberals are calling for this so hard? And it's just purely performative. But if you're a conservative, this is the part that I think, uh, like, the bigger political issue here is this growing divide between the BC Liberals and basically, you know, the sizable conservative contingent of voters in the province the BC Liberals have always had a difficult time holding this coalition together. And when they make uh, performative, when they, when they make performances like this, basically, conservatives, I think, look at this and they think, you know, how could I ever vote for these guys? They're so eager to restrict uh, certain freedoms. Let's go through what it means when you actually invoke and declare a state of emergency under the Emergency Programs Act. So first of all, the important thing, you know, not section nine, nine, uh, one of the act 
it, it's what it's what authorizes cabinet to declare the state of emergency. But the important thing is, is that it doesn't have to cover the whole province. It can be declared just for certain areas. So it's entirely possible for for the province to declare a state of emergency in a Soyuz. It doesn't have to extend it across the province. And so we're now in this position where, you know, I guess they basically uh, folded to, to the opposition pressure on this and the opposition is doing a victory lap on it. For what reason? I don't know. Um, j- I guess just because they can demonstrate that they're not entirely useless. Uh, although, um, I mean, th- this real, like there's really no, anyway, um, they, they have extended it across the province. So here's what, what happens. So section, the next section, uh, 10.1D, the, the, it, we're going to start to get into the kind of things, the, the special authorities now that a government can, uh, can carry out as a result of the state of emergency. Like, so it allows the government to acquire or use any land or personal property considered necessary to prevent, respond to, or alleviate the effects of an emergency or disaster. So, uh, I mean, you know, this doesn't happen very often, but they, it's now entirely legal for them to basically just come to your farm and, and commandeer all your equipment, for instance, uh, or, you know, take your truck as you're driving down the street. So if you end up going through a roadblock, they can just say, well, oh, you got a pickup truck. We've got a, a shortage of pickup trucks in the province, which is actually usually a thing. I remember back in, I think it was, when were the big fires that raged through Kelowna and all through the Okanagan? It's going back as far as I think 2005. Yeah. 2000, yeah. Right. About I remember 15, I was 16 years ago. Yeah. I, I, I still have this vivid memory. I was moving from Kelowna to Vancouver at the time and I didn't have a pickup truck like I do now. So I had to go rent one and I couldn't get a pickup truck anywhere in the province because they'd all been common, basically commandeered by the, by BC wildfire to fight these fires. Uh, fair enough. I mean, I wasn't complaining. It was, it was more important for them to put the fires out with the with the rental pickup trucks than it was me to move my stuff from Kelowna to Vancouver. Uh, but that's the this is the authority that allows that to happen, and they can they can just do it uh, to to individuals as well, not just to rental companies. What else do we have here? So, authorize or require uh, example conscript. Any person to render assistance of a type that the person is qualified to provide or that otherwise is or may be required to prevent, respond to, or alleviate the effects of an emergency or disaster. So this, there's another piece of legislation as well, and I think it's called the Wildfire Emergency Act or something like that, where there's sort of a duplicate uh, clause in here. This is the legislation that historically is the reason why when a wildfire started, the pubs would be empty in most small towns. Because people knew that what used to happen was the fire chief would walk into a pub and just conscript every all the men in the pub to come out and fight the fires. That's that's how we used to do it in British Columbia. Uh, and so, you know, when you saw smoke, you stayed out of the pubs because you didn't want you know you wanted to go protect your own stuff. You didn't want to get constrict conscripted by the by the province to have to go fight the fire somewhere else. And they have. I met, the I met somebody that. once where this who who this happened to, and they were just traveling through. They were just like eighteen or whatever. They just gotten out of school. Like they were, they they were in Hope or something. I guess they decided they wanted to be Rambo. They were hitchhiking through Hope, <laughs> and they and and they got. Uh, there, you know, some flashing lights turned on. Uh, the truck pulled a Yui. This must have been in the seventies or whatever. They pulled up next to him. It was like, "Where are you boys going?" So, well, we're all heading up north to go go work on a mine or something. We're yeah, we're gonna go were. make money in a mine. It's like, yeah, yeah, you were headed up there. Get in the truck. <laughs> yeah. And they were and they were conscripted. They were paid. They were paid. They were given their check yeah. at the end. But sure. they but they were put through 
you know, fire training, which was hold the hose and don't die, and then uh, told to fight the fire. That was how it was. Well, and that's the thing is that it says you have to be qualified, but holding a hose, you know, they can deem you qualified after you've received 30 seconds worth of instruction, right? Hold the hose like this, stand like this and point it this way, point it at the flame. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, this, this is uh, – and I don't even necessarily disagree with this stuff, but like – are we in this spot where we have to start conscripting people? Like, you know, as we go through this, you start to realize that the people that were, that were screaming to the rafters for a state of emergency to be declared, they don't even know what it means. They just sort of want attention. Like they have no idea what it, what it, they just say, Oh, it means you can get more resources from where, what other resources that we don't ever already have? Like, why do we need a state of emergency to invite uh, firefighters from Alberta, Mexico, all over the, the world, actually, to come in and help us out. We don't. We've already done that. You don't require a state of emergency to do it. And like I said, if we go back to the original slide, you know, Brendan Ross is saying we've we've been fighting these fires early uh, all summer and we have, you know, we don't need to restrict your freedoms at this point to do it. We'll let you know if that changes, you know. So what else? Authorize the entry into any building or any land without warrant by, this is this stuff gets scary, by any person in the course of implementing an emergency plan or program or if otherwise considered by the minister to be necessary to prevent, respond to, or alleviate the effects of an emergency or disaster. So I actually don't have any concerns that the current BCNDP government is going to abuse this stuff. And part of the reason why I'm not concerned about that is because they seem so reluctant to, to invoke a state of emergency, even when the opposition, the, the so-called free market coalition, the center-right coalition, is lighting, pardon the pun, lighting their hair on fire because the province hasn't yet restricted our freedoms uh, and invoked this state of emergency. But, you know... They can now, like, if you had somebody in government that had a bit of an authoritarian bent, like the kind of the kind of politicians that cry for this stuff, even though they don't really know what it means, you can see all sorts of entry points for abuse. And and it's important for people to actually take a look at the legislation to see what the stuff means before they start calling for this, which is why it's so confusing to me that the Union of BC Indian Chiefs of all organizations who has a long history of justifiably being concerned about authoritarian overreach by the provincial government, given the history of treaty negotiations and betrayals, would be the, would be joining the BC Liberals at the top of the fray calling for this state of emergency. It just baffles the mind. That's part one of this week's Ram and Stag. We'll have part two in a moment here on After Nine. An old man blind to his own bitterness. I will never forgive her. A young girl blind to her own identity. There are people who want to hurt me. Together, they find a treasure, the hidden hand. I will take the girl. Get rid of Capitola once and for all. Starring Katie Lee as Capitola. Discover the hidden hand on the next Lamplighter Theater. Sundays at 7 a.m. and p.m. here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. 
The Youth and Grandparents Film Program. Families are invited to tell their stories on video as part of a new production project. Up to 40 young people from the area will be chosen to participate in a program to produce one short film each featuring their grandparents either virtually or in person. Films will be featured in a virtual gala submitted to the Real Youth Film Festival and distributed on YouTube. It's the Youth and Grandparents Film Project. To get involved, contact project leader Courtney Trudeau by email to k.com. Trudeau at hotmail.ca. The next virtual event from the BC Chamber of Commerce is transitioning from COVID-19 to communicable disease prevention in the workplace. This Zoomed webinar will feature Director of OHS Consultation and Education Services at WorkSafe BC, Chris Back. Registration and full details are available through the Chamber's website, bcchamber.org. Transitioning from COVID-19 to communicable disease prevention in the workplace. The next BC Chamber of Commerce webinar, Wednesday, July 28th at 1 through bcchamber.org. Forecast for Environment Canada. Increasing clouds this morning with a 30% chance of showers. Winds in the southwest at 20, a high of 20 with a high UV index. Mainly cloudy tonight with a 30% chance of showers. Southwest winds becoming light, a low of 9. For Saturday, mainly cloudy, a 30% chance of showers and a high of 22. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station. 93.1 CFIS-FM. As promised, here is the second part of this week's Ram and Stag. As, as somebody who has lived on a farm uh, for a decent chunk of his life, I, I also am not super interested in the government having a warrantless way of getting onto my property to come and see what I've been up to for the last couple of years. I, I, I already have a problem with BC assessment coming on there and trying to up my taxes for no good reason. I have a yeah. problem with the ALR and BC assessment not understanding that a piece of land that has no buildings on it, no hydro, no access to public roads is not lakeside residential. It's a farmer's field and having to fight them on that and then finally i have no time for you know again even my regional district who decides that my secondary dwelling just because it happens to not be an ugly trailer somehow doesn't qualify as a permitted structure when they kind of told me it did and then it didn't then i don't know what's happening and they got bill c52 like i mean farmers got enough problems as it is and and this isn't going to help no, not at all. I mean, I, what would be a beautiful scenario from my perspective in your individual case is if they did come onto your land as a result of uh, this and decided that this building that the regional district or whoever won't permit uh, actually ends up being a perfect structure to help them fight the firehouse exactly. firefighters exactly. because it actually is. <laughs> so wouldn't that be funny? And I wonder, you know, if you could then use that example to argue that it should be permitted. Uh, probably not uh, because most of these agencies don't talk to each other or, or, or do anything that makes any sense. But again, this is, you know, this is the kind of over, overreaching powers that they award themselves because it gets worse, like it actually gets worse. So, the, you know, the next section says it enables government to procure fixed prices for or ration food, clothing, fuel, equipment, medical supplies, or other essential supplies, and the use of any property, services, resources, or equipment within any part of British Columbia for the duration of the state of emergency. So... Uh- why hasn't somebody done this and fixed our gas prices yet? Like, I mean, really, like, I, you know, back, uh, gas is, gas is, you know, a buck a liter and, uh, smokes are five bucks a pack. And, uh, you know, I mean, burgers, uh, we're going back to the dollar menu at McDonald's. Like, I don't, this is great. I, buck, all of a, buck sudden, a liter, it's buck 45 a liter. And then down in Vancouver, it's like almost two bucks, like a buck and three quarters. Yeah. No, this has got to be, this has got to be stopped. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So do, do, if now you got a state of emergency, do something with it. I guess we could say, yeah, price price fixes. Let's do it. Um, so I, I mean, you can even if you're not concerned about, like, you can look at this and go, you know, whoa, this is concerning. But it also gives you a sense of why we have this legislation and the kind of situations in which it's useful. So if you're like, what kind of scenario do you have to be in where government has to fix prices and ration food and clothing and fuel for the populace? You have to be in a, yeah, it's, it's exactly (laughs) what it is. It's wartime, right? And so like, why is the so-called right wing government, the, the government that's supposed to be for, or sorry, not government, but, uh, Opposition party, the right, the the so-called center-right, right-wing party in British Columbia that is supposed to be the home for conservatives, calling for this, the, these kind of uh, restrictions, lockdowns, and powers for for government in this scenario when you know when Brendan Rolfs from Emergency Emergency Management BC is saying we're good, like we don't <laughs> we don't need this additional authority. That's what's that's what I think all conservatives should be asking themselves. Um, and it, it goes on. It's also it's similar to the Public Health Act. It can be used to control or prohibit travel to or from any area of British Columbia. This is what the BC Liberals have been calling for for the better part of a week and are now doing a victory lap because the public safety minister uh, the day before yesterday finally got on the air and said, OK, well, you asked for it. So now we're under a state of emergency. What they should do is press all of them who were calling for it into service to fight the forest fires. <laughs> that would be so poetic. You know, so show- they have this paddy wagon going around and it's playing Fortunate Son really, really loud. And they and they're just pre- they have press gangs. They're just pressing people into the paddy wagon who all have their lapels from uh, from being in legislature. That'd be brilliant. <laughs> Thank you again so much for joining us today, Aaron. Again, here bricking the show with us uh, before we go on hiatus. I really appreciate your presence here, and I'm very thankful for all the contributions you and all of our other contributors have made. Well, if, if you can indulge me for a moment, I, I just want to say, um, given that we won't be doing this for a little while now, how much of a pleasure it has been to, to do these shows with you. I think you're filling a, uh, a niche here that needs to be filled in British Columbia. You, you just don't see the kind of commentary uh, – in any other media outlet that you see uh, from from this show, sort of criticizing both sides when it when it needs to happen and eschewing sort of partisan allegiance. Uh, hopefully it doesn't take too long for you to come back because you're filling an important role in this province. Thank you so much, Aaron. That is this week's Ram and Stag. We'll be back with the Friday panel in a moment here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. You're listening to After 9. Theatre Northwest sewing camps for young children are back this year. The next camp runs August 3rd through 6th at Theatre Northwest, 556 North Nechaco Road. Projects will be geared to the beginner-intermediate skill level. Registration and full details are available through theaternorthwest.com. That's the Beginner Intermediate Sewing Camp for Young Children, August 3rd through 6th from Theater Northwest. It's a downtown Summerfest Saturday, and it should be a weedy good time. July 31st is Bikes Downtown, part of the Downtown Summerfest Saturdays, hosted by Downtown PG. Hop on your bike and get some exercise while you do some great shopping downtown. While there, enter for a chance to win a special $500 gift certificate from Psychologic. Also, make sure to browse through the two downtown markets on 3rd, part of Downtown Summerfest Saturdays, Bikes Downtown, July 31st. The region 
Regional District of Fraser, Fort George, has issued an evacuation alert for the Shesta Lake and Punshaw area. The alert has been issued as a result of wildfires in the area. Residents are asked to prepare for a possible evacuation order. Information on emergency preparedness is available on the Regional District website at rdffg.bc.ca or by calling 1-800-667-1959. For more information on the wildland fires in the area, visit the BC Wildfire Management Branch at bcwildfire.ca. Health Canada wants you to share on your social media channel your reason for getting vaccinated. Sharing your vaccination story can increase vaccine confidence among people in Canada. As more people get vaccinated, our communities become safer and we can all get back to the people, places and things we miss. Follow, tag and retweet Health Canada using the hashtag MyWhy to share your vaccination story at Healthy Canadians on Instagram, Healthy Canadians on Facebook and at GovCanHealth on Twitter. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And as per usual, it is time for the Friday panel for the Friday morning edition of After 9. And on the phone we have Herb Martin, Peter Ewart, Art Betke, and Eric Allen to talk about things going on in our world today. And we'll start uh, to, and talking about the new city manager uh, with Herb Martin. Your thoughts on the appointment of Walter uh, Babich as the new city manager? Uh, he looks like he has a steady hand. He has um, a degree in law, and uh, that might be something pretty useful, uh, having someone in the city who can actually read a contract. And maybe it'll stop uh, $32 million being spent on uh, parking, future parking um, areas. One thing I'd, I'd, I would like to find out, though, is uh, why the city paid Jerry Berry Consultants to um, uh, help find them, um, the uh, the new city manager, uh, when he was basically ran under their noses the whole time. Well, that's a good question. Uh, they they said they did a search w- uh, across the country to find the new city manager. Uh, Peter, if that's the case, did is it is it a situation where we had the best man for the job already here? Uh, well, yeah, not being privy to uh, all that went on and all that, but that that may well be the case. When municipalities and other uh, institutions uh, hire, you know, that, that's the whole issue. You know, should they bring in someone from outside or uh, someone from inside who is a known quantity? Of course, Walter Babich is, um, you know, a, a known quantity. Uh, bringing someone from the outside, uh, you know, you, you get some, you might get some fresh ideas, but also you, there's a big question mark there. So I guess, uh, you know, what was decided was uh, better to go with the known quantity. Walter Babbitt certainly has the qualifications, and uh, uh, hopefully, uh, anyway, it'll be for the best. Okay, uh, Art uh, Walter Babbitt is from the area. Uh, is that uh, the best way to go in this uh, scenario? Oh, it probably is. He's very familiar with the area, the city, and all the problems we've had before. And uh, he's already been on the job. So, yeah, it makes a whole lot of sense to hire him. I don't know why they would waste money doing a search across Canada or uh, waste money on uh, all these consultants. I, I quite often hear of all the hundreds of thousands of dollars the city is uh, spending on consultants when, you know, just use your own common sense for Pete's sake. Uh, Eric, common sense, uh, is it uh, in short supply at City Hall, or what's your thoughts there? Well, 
the thing is, it's it's they want to be seen to be doing the right thing, and they don't want to, uh, to be seen to be just hiring their friends for jobs. And so they go through the process of, of searching all over uh, Canada for the best people, and then and then it seems that they come to the conclusion that <clears throat> that people had applied for the jobs didn't meet the criteria that they ex- expected, and uh, they were just fortunate that they had Walter there that didn't meet those criteria, and he got the job. Now, it, it, you wouldn't think that they would go through that process, but the fact of the matter is, it's not unusual. And and we had it with Kathy or uh, with Kath Soltis there. Uh, she was local. She worked in the city for 18 or 30 years or something. They looked all over the country for a city manager while she was the acting city manager, and then they didn't find anybody, so they hired her. And uh, prior to that, we had Derek, uh, I can't think of his name right now. He was the manager of the regional district down on First Avenue, and they went all over the country looking for somebody, and then he walked seven blocks up to City Hall and took the job. So Beth James was the one that they did get uh, through Mayor Green, brought her up from Vancouver, and she only lasted for, I don't know, 20 months or something. So they go through the process, but quite often they already know who's going to be hired, but they have to be seen to be doing the right thing. And so that's what they do. And uh, I think Walter is, uh, you know, certainly qualified for the job. Yeah, well, for sure. We had him on the show yesterday and well-spoken and seems to know what he's doing. So uh, just talking about the process, Herb, uh, we've we've spent, uh, as uh, Eric pointed out, uh, spent money on consultants more than once to look across the country to find uh, someone to fill the position. Uh, is it something that they do need to do every time just for perceptions purposes? Well, I mean, it, it seems, uh, no. I mean, basically, they don't have to do it. Uh, if they've got, um, they should put a, a call, you know, a call for tender or a, a call for uh, uh, submissions and um, uh, choose the best candidate. And if the candidate's right there, um, even better. Why keep paying consultants? It's basically just um, a smokescreen to say that they've done the right thing. Um, just, just um, you know, be assertive. Uh, take some responsibility and uh, make a choice you know it's uh, you don't need to always cover your tracks and uh, the, the, the sad thing is that um, the uh, no one knows how much these consultants were paid I mean that should be a matter of public record yeah uh, Peter that brings up a good uh, a good point uh, when you when you put out the uh, the notice that the jobs available, that would be posted right across the country. Does that make sense just to to see who steps up and applies as opposed to hiring a headhunter to go out and try to find uh, applicants? Yeah, I would tend to agree with Herb, right? You know, that uh, I think sometimes the consultant's uh, role gets overplayed. And, uh, of course, it is very uh, costly, you know, especially when you're, you know, hiring senior administrators uh, on a regular basis. And, uh so I, yeah, I would, uh, I, I would agree with that idea that uh, you know maybe there can be some cost reduction there because it be- it becomes a, a whole process with the consultants and uh, interviewing all this kind of stuff, right? Whereas uh, you know the, the staff is already there, uh, they can do the interviewing and uh, 
if people are interested, uh, yeah, they will respond. So, yeah, I would go along with the idea that minimize or eliminate the uh, role of consultants. Art, did we find the right man for the job? Oh, time will tell. Uh, uh, He seems like uh, a very good fit for the position at this point. I uh, can't see any reason why we should doubt that he's the right man. Um, I'm sure we thought that before, too, but uh, probably we did. Yeah, Eric, he was in the position uh, briefly in in an interim role. Uh, Your thoughts on his performance uh, when he was in there, uh, uh, not officially? Well, I think for the short term he was in there, and uh, Ian Wells was acting as an assistant to him at the time. And uh, so I don't know how much of their old work they were looking after while they were doing the new work, but they seemed to get through it okay. But the thing is, I mean... We, Walter and the other people at City Hall, a lot of them, have some pretty good inside information of what's gone on there in the last 10 years or so. And uh, Skaken was asking for a, sort of an in-depth uh, audit of what, what was going on, and we kind of got a report outlining, you know, what happened, but it was nice and clean, and this is what happened, and, and so now we're going to follow these procedures and everything's going to be Okay. But the thing is, they should have been following those procedures right from the get-go. They're, they're common knowledge procedures for capital projects put out by the uh, in the community charter. They should have been following them. Nobody said why they weren't, why they did it themselves. They're cautioned not to go into partnerships with private uh, companies because there's, there's a lot of uh, problems that can come from that. They did it anyway. So we need more answers now. Uh, hopefully, Walter, maybe, and, and if Skaken keeps on it, maybe we can go down the road and find out what really happened. I mean, this situation that we're in today is accumulation of 15 years of bad decisions. And we sure as hell don't want 15 more years of bad decisions. We can't afford it. No. This, when you put this all together, it cost us over $100 million. People don't know that because they don't go back and start adding it up. Yeah, another uh, full kettle of fish that we'll have to get into uh, again sometime. Uh, Take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the state of emergency in B.C. here on After 9. In support of the Spirit of the North Healthcare Foundation, the Coast Prince George Hotel's annual Wine Lovers Evening is set for September 24th. The much-anticipated event will take guests on a culinary tour of the Americas, showcasing various wines of different regions. Tickets are on sale now and are expected to go quickly. The Coast Prince George Hotel's annual Wine Lovers Evening, Saturday, September 24th. Tickets available at the Spirit of the North Healthcare Foundation office or at the Coast Prince George Hotel front desk. Nonprofit financial reports are about so much more than compliance. When organized properly, financial reports provide critical information for making strategic decisions about your organization and its programs. Vantage Point is presenting a three-hour virtual session on strategic financial governance September 14th. Registration and full details are available through vantagepoint.ca. It's ideal for board members, executive directors, CEOs, and financial directors of nonprofit organizations. Strategic Financial Governance, September 14th from 1 to 4 through vantagepoint.ca. 
Extreme heat is especially dangerous for infants and young children. Tune in regularly to local weather forecasts so you know when to take extra care. Stay alert for symptoms of heat illness. Keep your child hydrated with plenty of cool liquids to drink before they feel thirsty. Keep your home as cool as possible and plan outdoor activities during cooler parts of the day. More information on how to keep your children safe during extreme heat is available at the Health Canada website through Canada.ca. Forecast for Environment Canada. Increasing clouds this morning with a 30% chance of showers. Winds in the southwest at 20, a high of 20 with a high UV index. Mainly cloudy tonight with a 30% chance of showers. Southwest winds becoming light and low of 9. For Saturday, mainly cloudy, a 30% chance of showers and a high of 22. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And our Friday panel lined up to talk a little bit about what we heard in the first half of the show, which was a discussion about the state of emergency called in B.C. due to the forest fires. And we'll start with Herb. Uh, was it a necessary move on the uh, on the part of the B.C. government to call the state of emergency? Well, probably not. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's a useful thing, a state of emergency, if someone's willing to actually pull the trigger and do something. So, uh, you know, there's so many fires that started July 1st or thereabouts, and um, uh, most of them were largely left unattended. Uh, if you look at uh, Mount Porter, which is now over 15,000 hectares, um, no, one, no one actually fought that fire for uh, over a week. Um, Canfor had a contractor eight kilometers away, and they were logging right up until uh, July 8th. And um, now there's, uh, you know, they, I mean, someone someone could have requisitioned those those that that, that equipment. Something could have done been done, but um, no one seems to be taking fire seriously anymore. Um, you know, if you look at it, uh, the four four or five fires around Germans Landing already have burned uh, close to sixty thousand hectares. If you add it up, that uh, foregone uh, money to the crown in terms of stumpage comes close to $435 million. Um, you know, the, the lack of response is just astounding. Uh, Peter, is the state of emergency call a bit of a step uh, beyond what was needed for this uh, situation? Uh, yeah, well, my take would, you know, go on the basis of what, uh, you know, people in local areas were calling for, like who were uh, affected, as, you know, where the fires were close by. And uh, I think, you know, they, that's what they were calling for. Uh, and uh, Horgan, of course, uh, didn't go along with that uh, until just several days ago. Um, but um, the state of emergency... Uh, you know, the, the thing with it, of course, is that uh, it gives the government very draconian powers in terms of what it can do. It can do everything from seizing property, uh, entering buildings without warrants, uh, uh, demolishing buildings, uh, you know, all sorts of things like that. And, of course, it involves um, uh, a focus of government uh, resources and, and funding as, as well, you know, the, the whole the whole bit, but uh, I would basically go along with the idea that it was uh, it was warranted, especially when we, you get the calls from the local areas that uh, they, they needed uh, you know the intervention that comes from the Emergency Program Act. Okay, uh, Art, uh, state of emergency. Uh, would they have been able to call a state of emergency just for certain areas of the province? would make more sense. We certainly don't need it up here, nice and cool and wet and no smoke in the air. 
And uh, but I, I think rather than just calling a state of emergency and getting all those uh, extra powers, they should uh, return to past practices for fighting fires. Like Herb said, you know, and you got a fire that nobody goes and fights for a few days until it gets big. What's the point of that? Uh, way back in the late 60s, early 70s, when I worked for the Forest Service, we had a policy. Uh, you hit the fires as soon as you find them. Get them, hit the small ones hard. Once you have a great huge fire that's burning out of control, only Mother Nature, a change in the weather, is going to have an effect on that. You can go around behind uh, the sides in the back of it and, uh, you know, put your guards in and stop it from spreading there. But uh, what, what I heard them say one time was, you know, they have all these small fires that are unattended because they just don't have the resources for them. Well, it's a waste of resources on big fires that you can't stop. Uh, what we used to do is take uh, resources away from those big fires, hit the little fires so they didn't become big. I don't think they're doing that anymore. That makes no sense. If they would start uh, doing it the way we used to do it, I don't think they'd ever have to worry about a state of emergency. Okay, Eric, that brings up a good point. Someone mentioned the other day that uh, there are no large forest fires in Alberta because they have uh, have it set up where there's people on hand to stop the fires when they're small. Is that something we need to look at uh, in B.C.? Yeah, I think uh, they, should, they should go back and look at the whole thing. What's basically happened over I don't know how many years is uh, the fighting of forest fires in British Columbia is now basically a private business. Most of it's run by private. Like all the air bombers and everything is private. Uh, you know, we have contractors that are all private. I think we've only got a 1,000 actually trained firefighters. I don't know. I guess they're on the government payroll or something, but if we're not using them, they go to Australia, Mexico, whatever. Then the Mexican and Australians come up here and fight when we have fires. And it, it's it's just nowhere near what it used to be. But, you know, you have to be able to... Uh, I think at that time we had a lot more mills than that, and they had a, a responsibility to respond to a fire in their area. We don't have too many more mills in the bush anymore, or anywhere for that matter. And the, the situation has basically changed, but it should be looked at with uh, to see if you know what we can do to change it. Because I agree with Art in that uh, you know sometimes the big fire can be left and just to go get uh, the small ones, so that, you know you don't keep going on. But I mean, these fires today are only so far this year is only half of what it was in uh, 1958 for areas burned. So whether they'll break that record or not, I don't know. And and there is a differential. It's different now in their terminology. If you listen to it, they're calling them wildfires and sometimes forest fires. In actual fact, they're two different things. Wildfire could be running down through Kamloops and burn ten thousand acres and never never get a tree, or like in Northern California or something. And, uh, and a forest fire is, is burning good timber. So it all has to be looked at. Yeah, I guess uh, grass fires uh, definitely. Uh, part of that whole equation. Uh, we'll take a quick break. When we, when we come back, we'll uh, discuss a topic that I don't think we've uh, talked about in a little while, and that is the uh, the ongoing pandemic in a moment here on After 9. 
What does aging and living well mean to you? Share your perspectives about what aging and living well looks like and could look like for two SLGBTQI communities in Canada and how communities could be better supported. Everyone who's 65 or older identifies as two SLGBTQI and is willing to participate in a telephone or video interview is invited to participate in the National Senior Study. For more information or to take part, click through the National Senior Study link under eGale in Action at egale.ca Enjoy the summer weather and help support long unemployed musicians while enjoying a concert in the park. Join award-winning Canadian fiddlers J.J. Guy and Gordon Stobie at the Bandshell in Clay Lake Tanay Memorial Park Saturday at 7. Admission is by donation. Bring your own lawn chair or a blanket to sit on the grass. That's fiddlers J.J. Guy and Gordon Stobie at Clayton Tanay Memorial Park Saturday at 7. Brought to you by the BC Old Time Fiddlers Association. Summer creativity camps at Two Rivers Gallery are open for registration. Week-long camps are available for children ages 5 to 13 through July and August. Full-day and half-day camps will explore a wide range of mediums and themes. Visit tworiversgallery.ca or their Facebook page for full details. Then get creative this summer with Two Rivers Gallery Creativity Camps through August at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza. The Red Cross is now accepting donations to support those affected by massive wildfires across B.C. Red Cross teams are working closely with local, provincial, and Indigenous governments to plan how to best support those in need. You can help by making a financial donation to the British Columbia Fires Appeal online at redcross.ca or by calling 1-800-418-1111. The Red Cross B.C. Fires Appeal. Donate today at redcross.ca or by calling 1-800-418-1111. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And for our final topic today, I'm bringing back uh, an oldie but goodie. Uh, Going to talk a little bit about the COVID pandemic and uh, a bit of a concern that I've had recently where we saw the numbers in uh, northern across northern BC health region drop substantially over uh, the course of a couple of months from hundreds down to where we're at right now, which is around 30. But for the last week or so, it's just been hovering around 30. And and I, I kind of wonder, uh, we'll start with Herb, are we, are we as a population perhaps uh, not taking it as seriously as we still should be? Well, there's still an opportunity for people to get uh, vaccinated, Um the uh, the new variants coming out are, are definitely more harmful than uh, than the previous ones. People should be taking them seriously. If you look at uh, the states, um, their uh, their infection rates about ten times that of Canada. Uh, mortality rates double or triple. So uh, there's a, you know and, and there's some states that have done quite well and uh, and some that haven't and it's. It's primarily um, a reflection of the rates of vaccination. So uh, people who haven't been vaccinated, take it seriously and get vaccinated. And that's a good uh, a good segue, the, the fact that in the U.S. There's, there's numbers soaring here and there. And actually, I believe uh, all 50 states have had a bit of a, a jump in their rates. Uh, so, Peter, are, are we not paying attention to these signs the way we should be? Uh, well, I think that's a good question because, you know, my concern now is that even as we, uh, you know, if we get to the end of this to whatever degree that will be, 
that the whole question of summing up and bringing about changes, uh, you know, for example, when we look at Canada, you know, the fact that uh, uh, we didn't have the resources to uh, manufacture our own vaccines and we're at the mercy of uh, globalist uh, supply chains. And then, of course, there's the, you know, the regulation of the uh, seniors' homes and uh, staffing and uh, a whole number of, of things that um, have to be summed up and and changes brought about in my opinion so i think that that's a that's a critical issue uh, i think one of the things that is evident also is that we're not necessarily through this all the way you know this uh, even if it uh, stays relatively low in terms of infection rate it's going to be lurking around and uh, we will need to have the policies and regulations and so on to take that into account that um, that, that this uh, this thing will still lurk around in the years to come but uh, we do need that summing up and uh, you know the whole question of government uh, you know bringing in you know concrete measures rather than just moving on to the next topic when the uh, COVID-19 dies down yeah Uh, Art this is one of your favorite hot topics Uh, what's your thoughts on the current situation of the COVID pandemic well, from what I can determine, um, the, the newest variant that everybody's uh, worried about is the uh, Delta, which uh, is highly infectious, but is not particularly uh, deadly. Um, I, I've seen a number of uh, uh, sources of information on different areas where, uh, while the infection rate is going up, sometimes going up dramatically, uh, the death rate is not. In fact, it's even continuing to fall. Um, so it's actually in in some uh, situations uh, somewhat less deadly than the common cold or the flu. And uh, my biggest fear is that, okay, we're going to get more infections coming and the government will reimpose all kinds of restrictions and lockdowns and uh, do a whole lot more harm than good. Um, we have, uh, if you look in the States, uh, like Herb said, uh, there's a whole lot of different um, um, uh, responses to the vi- uh, virus and the pandemic, and the states that have had the least restrictions, in some cases no restrictions at all, are usually the ones doing the best as far as new infections and deaths. Uh, so it's uh, something I think we're just going to have to uh, live with for a while, and I think if we uh, do very little, uh, we'll, we'll do better off. Um, the one thing that they are doing, like Los Angeles is uh, requiring masks again and restrictions and all that kind of stuff, one thing they will not do is allow uh, proven cures and preventatives like ivermectin and uh, hydroxychloroquine, <laughs> which have been very effective in countries that have used them. So uh, I, th- I think we need to smarten up and... Uh, do things properly that work rather than things that uh, give authority but no no effects okay eric uh, one minute left we'll give you the last word your thoughts on the current situation of the pandemic well i was just going to say like uh, in indonesia now the uh, you know it's almost out of control i forget what this it just you know humongous numbers of people that are getting this every day and it's, it's on a rampage down there so you know it just seems to be one day we think it's coming down and the next day we find out it's breaking out somewhere else so 
It's like sort of having a bath with an alligator in the tub. You don't want to have a little snooze or anything. You want to keep your eye on it because you could be in deep trouble. Bathing with alligators. I think we'll leave it at that for this week. Thanks to Herb <laughs> Martin, Peter Ewart, Art Betke, and Eric Allen, as usual, for our Friday panel. And we'll be back again uh, Monday uh, with After 9. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. This is Community Radio 93.1 CFISFM Prince George.